0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, blank stares turn out to be the fingers of Cthulhu, reaching through a face to grab your soul's pocketbook. Contest of wills and wants, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. right now welcome to the bain free radio hour podcast it's an honor to have you along i'm bain senior editor tony daniel this time we have part one of an interview with the editors and authors of we shall rise edited by john ringo and gary Poole. this is a wonderful new collection of stories set in john ringo's black tide rising science-based zombie series We have with us Gary Poole, Jason Cordova, Lydia Scherer, Mike Massa, and John Ringo himself, along to discuss this excellent anthology. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. We have a June hard science fiction ebook sale you should check out. Inspired by real science, gritty, realistic, that's hard science fiction. To celebrate the awe inspiring, wonder producing hard science fiction of great vein authors such as Patrick Childs, Travis S. Taylor, and of course, Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes, here are some amazing ebook discount selections for June. We have $2 off on Frozen Orbit by Patrick Chiles. We have $2 off Battle Luna by Travis S. Taylor, Timothy Zahn, Michael Z. Williamson, Casey E. Zell, and Josh Hayes. And we have a $2 off special on The Legacy of Herod by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. Plus $1 off on a huge selection of hard science fiction ebooks, including titles by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell. Patrick Childs, Travis S. Taylor, and more. Check out all the discounts at the Bain website, but the discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. The June Hard Science Fiction ebook sale, Where Gravity Makes Things Falls, The Speed of Light is an Actual Speed Limit. And ebook discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. Want to call your attention to the winner of the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award 2021, G. Scott Huggins. This is a story. It's called Salvage Judgment. The award will shortly be given out at the International Space Development Conference Banquet, and it will be on the Bain.com front page for your reading pleasure on June 15th. As I have said before, when I sometimes get to present this award, which is super fun, by the way, since 2007, the National Space Society and Bain Books has honored the role that science fiction plays in advancing real science, by teaming up to sponsor the Jim Bain Memorial short story award with the national space society. The prize is given out at the international space development conference, the ISDC each year salvage judgment is the winner of this year's Jim Bain Memorial short story award. And for the first time in over a decade, we have a double winner of both the JBM and the Bain fantasy adventure awards. That's our fantasy um, yearly contest for new writers. That story was called Human Slayer, and it was also by G. Scott Huggins. He was the 2020 Grand Prize winner of the Bain Fantasy Adventure Award. And we would like to stress that both contests are judged blind, and the judges had no idea, and I'm one of them, who um, the authors were while adjudicating the contest. So excellent job by G. Scott Huggins twice in a row. And check out Salvage Judgment, which I think you'll like, at the Bain website and collected in the free ebook download, Free Short Stories 2021, available at Bain eBooks. This is part one of a two part roundtable discussion of We Shall Rise. Part two will be available next week on the podcast. I hey, want to welcome John Ringo, Gary Poole, uh, Mike Massa, Hello. Cordova, and Lydia Scherer to the podcast. Hi, folks. How's Hello.
2: It? Hello. Howdy. Hi, Tony.
1: Um, let me talk about each of you a little bit so we can, uh, we can get some uh, orientation. John Ringo is the creator of the Poslinger series, which has become a New York Times bestselling series with over one million copies in print um also he's written a lot more stuff and co-written with a lot of people um (laughs) what what we particularly want to talk about today is his science-based zombie apocalypse black tide rising series another best-selling series um which includes under a graveyard sky um with that devastating kurt miller cover that i i think is kurt's best work ever um to sail darkling sea islands of rage and hope and strands of sorrow and he's written um with Mike Massa, who we have here, oh, two more novels in that, um, in that series. Um, Gary Poole has worked in the entertainment and publishing industry for his entire adult life. He worked directly with John Ringo and several other authors on over a dozen novels and anthologies, um, including the predecessor to this, which was uh, something of the fall. Right? What is it? Um,
2: Voices of the Voices of the Fall.
1: Voices of the Fall. Before that, Black Tide Rising's uh, anthology. So, this is the third group of stories set in John Ringo's amazing uh, Black Tide Rising universe. Um, uh, Gary is also a film and television screenwriter, the managing editor of a successful alternative news weekly in Tennessee, and he hosts a popular morning radio show and has voiced over uh, well over 3,000 radio and television commercials. Uh, Jason Cordova is a 2019 Dragon Award finalist, a kaiju enthusiast, which I assume is something deadly, Um, a former (laughs) high school basketball coach and has authored over 15 novels and been in dozens of anthologies. He currently lives in Virginia. Lydia Scherer uh, writes the ongoing best-selling urban fantasy series love lies and hocus pocus the lily singer adventures magical epic full of snark tea and a talking cat and her urban in addition to her urban fantasy series series lydia has written the epic fantasy when the gods laughed that was included in the usa today best selling box set wrath and ruin um her latest project is a gaming adventure sci-fi collaboration with john ringo himself involving monster hunting in augmented reality which is gonna um i believe it's on our 2020 schedule so you better April. finish that
3: oh it's well the first one's done well i don't know i'm done with the okay. first one john how are you how are you doing john
1: And, uh, well, we'll talk about that. And uh, Mike Massa is a longtime contributor to the Black Tide uh, Universe. He's co-written two novels, including uh, Valley of Shadows and River of Night. Both of those were national bestsellers, as well as five short stories. And he also writes fantasy, mill SF, and nonfiction. Mike works for an award-winning research university, integrating machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies into practical applications. And uh, he used to be a Navy SEAL and still is i guess you never not be that right
3: um oh you need to unmute yourself mike unmute yourself
4: that's the rumor you never stop being a frog man
3: well same with marines that's the thing as an ex-marine
1: and there you go so uh today we are here to talk about this book which is um we shall rise and it is a great uh it it it's the third anthology in this. um, This is the 3D version. Yeah. And Lydia has one too. I have a 2D version behind me as well. Um, It is uh, the third book in this um, great anthology series that Gary and John have edited and put together with, with just this amazing group of, the thing about John and Gary is that they, they're not only um, great, you know, they're really good at creating community, um, and they have a lot of writers they know, especially John, because he hangs out at Dragon Con all the time. And, and, uh, oh, Gary knows a lot more writers than I do.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've been hanging out at Dragon Con a lot longer, yeah. too.
5: They seem to He's grab been him. Hanging out or, guys. Yeah, at, at one point, you couldn't go to a con without tripping over him.
1: So he knows pretty much everybody. Yeah. Well, y'all create, I mean, the thing is, is that the cool people come and talk to y'all and you uh, eventually uh, get someone to actually write for your stuff. So, um, so well, let's talk about the conception and beginning of this, this series because uh, Gary goes over it some in his foreword. Um, can John and Gary uh, fill us in on some of that and, and what it is that, that you think has, has made this such a rich universe to explore for other writers too?
5: Well, the first two anthologies did extremely well. So essentially, if something's doing well in the publishing industry, they want more of it. Um, so the question became, what do we do next? Uh, the first book, the first anthology was more or less set in the early part of the universe, when the, when the plague was starting to spread and people were trying to figure out how they were going to survive. And at least in Mike Mass's story, very few did. Um, And so the next one was further in and people were starting to figure out how to get past the worst effects. The survivors were starting to figure out how to survive long term. But the whole thing in the main books was about, it wasn't about surviving, it was about keeping civilization from crashing entirely. And so the third book, they'd gotten past the worst of the the effects Things had started to stabilize. So the next thing was we shall rise. We are not going to let this send us into a thousand-year night. We are going to come back from this horrific event that has killed off most of the population of the world. We're going to gather together. We're going to refound civilization. We shall not fail.
1: We shall rise was the the genesis of it. Is that the Did secret get all that? sauce? The secret sauce you think is the is the general idea that that it's not really it's it's about the rebuilding. It's about the survival. This series has never been
5: about. This series has never been about uh, Walking Dead. It has never been about uh, um, what do they call it? Misery porn. This series, uh, our our publisher said, uh, Tony Weisskopf said, and it, I, I thought that it was a great thing to say is that two of the main characters in the main books are Faith and Sophia. Sophia means wisdom in Greek. And she said that the character design, every single page is hope. And that's always been the difference with this and a lot of other survivalist type stuff, whether it's zombie or, or nuclear war or whatever. It's never been about how am I going to survive. It's all about – it's always been about how am I going to help others survive. And how are we going to rebuild? How are we going to cre- recreate a civilization? Not necessarily the civilization that we lost because technology is so far beyond us, but, but a civilization with laws and rules and structures that we can rebuild from. It's always been about hope.
2: I've always thought one of the main appeals of the Black Side series is that, yes, it is a post-apocalyptic series, but it's never been about the apocalypse itself. It's been about people, individual people, people, you know, striving against great odds, but it's that indomitable spirit that I believe that we all have inside of us. And I think that's why the readers respond so well to these stories is because as John said, it is all about hope. Sometimes hope doesn't pan out, but many times it does.
5: Yeah, and and great characters, which Lydia says I can't write.
3: I did not say that as a matter of fact I never said that just so everybody knows I did not say those words John if you would please do not misrepresent me what I did was obliquely was obliquely obliquely imply that you write even better action scenes and even better logistical world building that's all I obliquely imply. You can definitely yeah, cut this out, bad. Tony. By the way,
2: definitely cut this <laughs> no, out. No, no, no. Really. Leave it in. <laughs> leave it in this. I no, no, mean, no, sure, sure, whatever. I don't care. As long as everybody
3: knows that John is misrepresenting me, then sure, that's fine. John, we love you, <laughs> course, and you're a great writer. Yes, I do.
5: <laughs> and and. And Lydia, you know I like messing with people,
2: right? Yes, I
3: do. Yes, I do. You're fine. I can take it. Really, I can take it. Like, me,
2: I'm good. Oh, Mm -hmm. by the way, you do realize that Jason Cordova has a story in this anthology, right? (laughs) Who?
6: (laughs) Who? It's never going to die.
2: Feel the love. (laughs)
3: so jason i'll say that so at least at least john rags on me Hi, like at least he knows i exist you know
6: yeah no like like i'm not kidding when john sat down next to me on that panel and he looked at me and said what are you doing here i'm like dude i'm in the i'm in the anthology and this was the first one i said i mean he just stared at me for dumbfounded like you are <laughs> <laughs> jason oh. i like messing with
5: people i've known you for how many years i mean Know you for 10 or 15 years i know Some who you guys. are i knew you were in the oncology
2: <laughs> well the this time your story ended up being the cover art so it'd be hard to miss
5: i did that deliberately. the most bane cover ever Dude. that 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 cover the most bane cover ever <laughs> yeah jim, jim bane wishes girl. that he was still alive so he could see the cover because it totally Jim would have it printed out. Jim would have it printed out oversized and like, and used it for wallpaper. <laughs> no, Kurt
2: Miller this Miller. The year. first Black Fantastic. Tide Rising
4: universe cover with two leaders and guns and explosions on it, right? This is not the first one.
5: Have, have you seen? No. Have you seen this one?
4: I, I have. It's a great cover, but the very first anthology was likewise. Shoe leaders pom poms, guns,
6: and explosions.
3: But it's backlit, Mike. It's backlit, so you can't see all the juicy details. Like as well, like look at it. See, it's backlit.
6: Yeah, there's a lot the of ca- more detail in this. The game. Catholic
3: school girls, Yeah, it's definitely better.
6: I those uh, those Mainers
1: uh, on the on the cover of uh, of uh, Voices of the Fall were were pretty good looking people from Maine. I've I've never seen them look quite so sexy. Oh yeah. <laughs> I that was a story, right? That was.
2: Um, we would like to apologize to all of our main viewers and fans because we all know that. <laughs> incredibly productive. I don't
1: know. It must have uh, been, you know. I think that those were the ones that have been going to the gym a lot. So.
2: Are we going to have to hand everyone a shovel in this podcast because people are digging holes here? <laughs>
1: Well, why don't we talk about, since we were discussing uh, the non-existence of Jason Cordova, why don't we talk about his story, Appalachian Rex, which is the cover story um, of the anthology. Uh, so uh, we begin in a Catholic's girls' school.
6: Uh, it's more of a preparatory and reformatory school. It's based off of a, a boys' home, actually, in the area where the story takes place that I worked at for about three years. And I lost about 20 years of my life from working there. But um, I, I just flipped it on its head because um, I, I wanted to have my a Bane cover since I started writing in Bane anthologies like seven years six, seven years ago. And I, I watched how the uh, Black Tide Writing Universe has progressed in the cover art. And I'm like, I know how to get on the cover. I've got a character, I know how to work this. And Tony will only beat me a little bit when she sees it. <laughs> <laughs> and I told Jerry when I
5: submitted is going it. To have, the next anthology is going to have <laughs> zombies in a
6: strip club. I know it will. <laughs> All right.
4: <laughs> you, know, John, you might recall, seriously, for our first novel together, one of the cover proposals was the pole dancer with the zombies attacking explosions in the background and a couple of 50 cals. And Tony said, "Love it." Hmm.
1: I I don't think I don't see why you guys think that's funny. <laughs> it, sounds <laughs> it sounds perfect to me. I mean, I could take this straight to Tony, and I mean, there would the art duration would be done.
2: <laughs> Just the entire concept of stripper zombies is is so vain.
3: Well, but they already strip, so isn't it kind of like? pointless that's not
5: true they're
6: they're they're already
3: stripped so
6: they rip off their clothes the
1: the, the tough part is teaching them pole dancing
3: oh okay (laughs) okay (laughs) Okay.
1: has a completely naked uh uh, beta zombie in his so um
3: yeah there is well i mean she's clothed by the time she's in the you know
1: inside the story yeah yeah and she's sad we don't want to talk about that but anyway I,
3: i really like your story though mike it's, I think it's my favorite besides mine of course you know
1: well let, let's continue talking about jason's um so uh obviously they put who's jason
6: uh, some guy
1: yeah. <laughs> obviously they put um sister uh sister anne on the cover uh
6: actually i think that's uh, the two the oh god they're both they're the california girls that's what they are in my head uh one was from orange the other was from like uh coast mason so i don't remember
1: yeah, but, um, so our narrator is one of these young reform uh, girls who
6: is at this convent. Yes. Uh, tell us, uh, give us the setup of the story. Um, Basically, it's about six six months, eight, nine months after the fall of the United States, and they're starting to rebuild. The girls' school has dwindled down. They went from like 60, 70 girls to now they're down to like 20 or something. Uh, with one adult, uh, that's Sister Anne, the former Marine, turned to nun. Um, and basically there's a warlord in Appalachia, um, the Covington Clifton Forge area, who's trying to rule it and the school standing up to him and his, uh, wannabe dictator ways. But at the same time, uh, at the uh, midway point, there's about more zombies arrive and nobody can figure out why these zombies are here because, you know, it's been so long since they've seen a war that side, that size.
3: So, Lucy is one of the girls. I can't actually find where you ever wrote the name down of the narrator. Jason, did you ever write her name down? Who's narrating it?
6: I'm pretty sure I did in the beginning. I don't have my copy. Well,
3: not it. in the first paragraph. You don't.
1: Well, Sister Ann refers to her. Uh, I At should have I think yeah. Maddie. Maddie. Yeah, Thank
6: Maddie. You. There we go. Maddie. Yeah. Right.
3: Because yeah. uh,
6: um, Chris name Smith. Is Maddie. Uh, one of the other authors, Chris Farrell Smith. Um, I was talking to his daughter one day when we I went on to visit, or he would, they were here visiting. I don't remember. And I told her I was just going to name a character after her, and she's like, "Yeah, whatever." And I was like, "Okay."
1: <laughs> so, so yeah, Maddie. And our the the Rex part of the Appalachia is the fact that this guy named Dale um, has decided he's going to set up a separate kingdom now is the what is the border so there this thing is in virginia and it's a state border right so
6: that this which makes a a it pretty much uh cover encompasses bath county bodice hot allegheny counties all the way into west virginia so pretty much where the uh um the upper and lower golly galley golly golly meet and that's the river Uh, all the way to well no the river the river that floods is actually a part of the jackson river right where the jackson and the cow passion meet and form the james river i live like right on that point and that's where the school is almost at as well and they're talking about the dam that broke which was up in mumah up the road from us and uh that dam actually looks like it's about ready to fail so it was it wasn't a hard stretch to just say hey look (laughs) the dam failed wiped out jackson river yeah
1: there's a lot of dam action in this universe for for some reason uh um, well, they're
6: they're they, they require a constant uh John did their uh sorry their, yeah go ahead i was just saying they, they they constantly they require constant um maintenance so six months without anything happening you're going to start seeing problems older dams like the one i used they're going to see failure at a uh, much faster and greater rate mm. Yeah, one of the things that we looked at for another book
5: was – which is still under consideration is essentially one of the surviving members of the Army Corps of Engineers finally getting face-to-face with somebody senior in the recovering American government and saying, if we do not get on infrastructure right now, it will knock us back 200 years Um, because infrastructure is a huge issue in this situation. and. uh, it, we almost made "We Shall Rise" be essentially all about infrastructure. You know, you've got to write about infrastructure. So Jason actually nailed the head on the uh, hit the nail on the head with that because you're starting to see infrastructure failures. And the single most critical piece of infrastructure in the United States is what? Anybody? Damn. No. What? What? What is the single most critical one individual item?
1: What yeah. is it? The sewer
5: you system froze. of New York yeah. City?
1: I don't know, <laughs> what?
2: Rivers.
5: Uh, the Appalachia FI-a water di- diversion system. Uh, and has anybody, I mean, besides me ever heard of it? Uh, Mike talking- Massa? <laughs> I've, I've <laughs> Driven past it. Yes.
6: We talked about
2: it for Who's the there? moment,
5: Oh, I did? Yeah, because the thing about it is, is that if the Appalachia Levees and water diversion system fails, The Mississippi River changes its course and it will go over dam or over bridges, which will be very difficult in that situation to remove it and it will shut down trade on the Mississippi for for a decade at least. Um, It will completely change the whole face of The Mississippi River drainage basin is our single biggest key to economics in any situation. I mean, currently, it is the single biggest key to economics we have. And if you lost that, it would shut it down. Um, So, yeah, the, the infrastructure is a huge issue. What I can't figure out is how to make people understand
1: that within a novel, or I would have already written the novel. But that does sound like a good thing to happen to start off a John Ringo novel. <laughs>
3: you know, John, I will say one thing that I love the most about the Black Tide Rising series was, you know, we were talking about how Tony was saying hope is on every page, and it absolutely is. But I feel like the Black Tide Rising series is is logistics. Like, it's, it's people, but it's people in logistics. Like, the focus isn't on the apocalypse or even the zombies. It's on people and logistics and you know and rebuilding so I really enjoyed that about the whole series and uh what you know what Mike did taking it on you know with the dam and everything and uh I think it might be a lot of fun to see where that might go in another anthology if it is uh infrastructure based like I would totally love to read an infrastructure based because you learn all of these cool like uh you know, electrical stuff and computer stuff and internet stuff and, you know, meat production and distribution. So you know, all these different infrastructures that, oh yeah, 2020 things broke down and we couldn't find pork in the grocery store anymore and all that stuff. I think people are primed to be interested in those kinds of systems um, because, you know, it's been in real life disrupted in our lives, uh, those supply chains and stuff. So I vote for another anthology with, with infrastructure as the focus. That'd be cool.
4: <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be an interesting proxy for some of the efforts being considered or actually underway to reonshore some of our core manufacturing capability in the United States. In the same way that, you know, access to certain kinds of chip fabs, certain kinds of metallurgical um, supplies, certain kinds of things like paint, and certain kinds of antibiotics—if um, you you just don't make them in sufficient quantity here in conus anymore so that that would be an interesting sort of metaphor
3: i think it also helps people appreciate things that everybody takes for granted like we just take it all for granted it just exists and we assume it'll always be there but you know i think it's something a lot of writers skip over when they do apocalypse uh apocalypse fiction so
2: yeah
5: well, one of the things i love it in, in apocalypse fiction is how everything works years later
2: yeah like yeah. cars
5: um but yeah the the one that got me and God I can't remember it was it was uh I can't remember what the hell the the T V show was, but everybody was using muskets. Um and and then they find this helicopter and it's twenty five, thirty years after you know, civilization has collapsed and there's this Huey that just starts right up. And uh now admittedly it's a Huey. <laughs> But no, a helicopter that's been sitting for 20 years doesn't just start. I mean, I, I did that when they found the helos in Mayport and all the work they had to go through to get those things up and going. Yeah. Um, I
2: don't and think yeah,
5: you know, you talk about that long, right? there are there are thousands of dams in North America and uh, you start losing dams on the Columbia River and it's just going to be it's, it's going to be a domino effect. Yeah. Um, same thing with the the Tennessee River. You start losing these dams, it's going to be a domino effect. The uh, uh, the book that Mike and I wrote had people who had, had holed up in the dam that, that were from TVA. And it was, we've, we've got to keep all this stuff working until people start to come back and things start to come back. Because if we don't, it all gets screwed up. Um, so that's one of the things people doing that. Um, there would be people that even in the apocalypse, even knowing that they're zombies and everything, would be working really, really hard to keep this stuff going, but at a certain point you need mass and you need coordination. Um, that was what I was considering um, which would be about uh, which would be essentially about uh, uh, the, the main characters, not Steve Smith, but Faith and Sophia and some of that group um, going up the Mississippi to basically start getting people in place to maintain critical infrastructure on the, the Mississippi drainage basin. Um, I I just haven't figured out a way to make it super interesting.
1: Um, <laughs> hmm. well, did I
5: actually say anything there?
1: Yeah. If you, you figured out how to, um, you and Mike figured out how to use dams to kill uh, infected in his books which was very effective and fun. <laughs> so, I well, one, of things,
2: one of the things I thought was real interesting, we're talking about infrastructure. Yeah, we think we think large things like highways and dams and bridges and stuff like that. But one thing I really liked about Mike's story in this anthology was he talked about something that we don't think about. It's the infrastructure of food, specifically coffee.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, let me ask uh, before we go on. Let me let me just ask Jason a few, a couple more things. Uh, one of the things that I found really, I loved the character of who, of Jeff.
2: Yeah. <laughs> we'll let it go, <laughs> that guy.
1: Yeah. <He>, uh, <laughs> He's like what, Zelig, he shows up in anthologies and nobody knows how he gets there. Um, So tell me about Sister Anne. Um, She's cool and she's sort of, she's not the
6: narrator, but she's definitely the the hero.
1: She's
2: terrifying.
6: She is terrifying. Gary's afraid of her for some reason. Um, She was, I needed a focal point. I needed a voice in there that was uh, understood what the girls were going through. Cause I mean, you've got, literally teenage girls trying to watch younger girls and the world is melting down around them and none of them are from the area like no none of these students come from the area they're all from all over the country so they don't know any idea what's going on with their families i mean they pretty much assume they're dead or turned uh so they i needed the focal point to be the emotional and mental stability block or stable block Uh, what's the word foundation there we go uh, for to build them on, to help them make the right decisions to move along in the story, and Sister Ann came about from that. Um, I actually kind of combined what makes her, and she's she was a lot of fun.
1: Uh, say that again, real quick, because I think my internet went out for a moment and, and deleted you. No.
6: Oh that's your most crucial oh, that was a thing. lot um <laughs> no, just the, uh, the last part of Sister from, Anne. From, from what oh, oh uh, she's the foundation of all the characters and the personalities and, uh, and what they can do to build upon as they, they try to recover and re as the uh, i quoted i actually quoted the title we shall rise in one of the uh as a line and they're said by sister Anne. i think she did And she essentially... No, no, no. It was the other sister. It was the other one right before she ate her around a 12. uh, Yeah.
3: Sister Margaret.
1: Who I killed in the first sentence. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, the thing about Sister Anne is that she really has no weapons except these girls and her personality against this, this, uh, you know, tribal mass of, uh, you know, this warlord dude. And she essentially just talks her way to victory in a way. With the girl's help, of
6: course. Well, yeah, but at the same time, when like when she put the fear of God in him, reminded him she is and who she is, what she does. And he, you see the immediate reaction where he responds to, Oh, I'm so sorry. He's just that instant respect, you know, mm-hmm. which was funny as well, because you have girls making little snide comments in the background while Sister Anne's chewing him a new one. So that was always fun too. Yeah.
1: Well, it's a very cool story, uh, Appalachia Rex so let's uh let's talk about mike's story since we brought it up um it's called the best part of waking up which is a great title um and we have uh billy joe destrahan um who's is he's a minor character from the um from the two uh tom smith novels right
4: yeah Yeah, billy joe is an example of a person who has great will to live but either decides to do or is coerced into doing things that are either you know dicey or outright bad and wrong because that's what it takes to survive and, and people will do whatever it takes uh, a certain category of people will do whatever it takes to survive and certainly the smith family is is one example of that although i would argue in a in a more positive direction so when he sees an opportunity this is billy joe to participate and maybe redeem himself and rebuilding the world, he hops on it. And uh, I'm, I'm one of those folks that loves coffee and I was trying to imagine a world where you couldn't get that fresh coffee. And I was also really curious in the, the money system, the economic barter system that John had set up in the first and second core story novels where there was a food and drink shit system. And I wanted to expand on, so what do we use for money now? It was an, an interesting question.
5: And so this yeah, I never day. really got into the, the economics of, of cash um, in that universe because I was never too sure where it would go. And for a little while, once they get on land, I'm pretty sure that it would be gold and silver um, simply because that's something physical that people can get their heads around. All money is essentially imagined. is essentially a fiction. But it's a fiction that everyone agrees to, and so you know if you've got a silver coin, it represents a certain amount of labor on the part of certain people doing certain things. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't really matter what that is, but the the reality is is that the value of something is what someone will give you for it, um, and all things come down to market, which is. You know that's that's very much hand wavium and when you get it down to what something actually works, um, most of the most of the the economics of the post-fall period for a very long time will be salvage. Um, but when it comes to foodstuffs, including coffee, uh, you're going to have to have some method to transfer value that doesn't involve physical items. Uh, barter is when you transfer one physical item for another physical item, you have to have it. It's much more efficient to have something that you can move easier than I've got 50 pounds of coffee and I need an engine for my truck. Um, you know, I can get an engine for my truck over there for X amount of some form of cash. Uh, will you give me that form of cash for this 50 pounds of coffee? Um, so, at some point, there has to be some sort of fiduciary, and that would have – if I had had a story in this, it would probably be an argument about, okay, what are we actually going to use for money um, because because the dollar would be completely useless. There's just too many of them around. It's waste paper. Uh, it's waste paper. Right? It's, it's literally – it's best use is toilet paper. Um, but gold and silver, on the other hand, probably wouldn't be. Um and that that is something that if I write a story in the next book, I'll probably set up that they they eventually set up a mint. Um and people gather gold and silver jewelry and take it to a refinery where it's melted down, turned it into pure gold and silver. That goes to the mint, that's that gets sold and turned into gold and silver. And the federal government also issues printed certificates for gold and silver which slowly would segue back into being dollars um, but it took me a while to figure that out
4: John your comment about uh, protecting existing infrastructure so that as we march back towards the basis for a continental civilization that's actually connected that's still federated um, it isn't just a big infrastructure that matters it's going to be little things that are gonna there are there are basically laying around and rotting and I'm trying to think of an example of that. Uh, it occurs to me that, you know, in the world of 2012, 13, and 14, there are tens and or hundreds of millions of cell phones. And talk about something that's worthless now. There's no power readily available to charge them, and there's certainly no cell network to use them. But the gleaners in the in the two novels that we shared, uh, that although they were fundamentally evil, the guy in charge was brilliant, and he knew he could see ahead to... It makes sense to save everything you can. So he was warehousing and cataloging everything. You find a cell phone, you pick it up, you stick it on the shelf. We'll need something like that or its components later because we're not going to be able to make what it's made out of for a very long time.
5: So well, we're not going to be able to make what it communicates with for a very long time. Um, you know, it's, it's not just a cell phone network. You know this because of the industry that you work in. I mean, it's a huge, sure. you know, if there's if there's two pieces of infrastructure that nobody thinks about that would be really, really good to figure out a way to get to them and get them back in operation, get power to them and get them all, you know, get them back working. It's May East and May West. They're, Think about it. Yeah. yeah, they're the two central nodes of the of the Internet. Now, um, I can't remember who it was. Was Kevin J. Anderson wanted to do a thing about bringing the internet back. Bringing the whole internet back, forget it. But satellites are still up there. And you might be able to get satellites operating. But the thing to remember is we're talking about 2012. We're not talking about Starlink. um, Because this all started in 2012. Um, But every satellite is essentially a server as well. So... If you've got the satellite networks working again, which they are in part, because we know that because they were using sat phones, um, you essentially have the beginnings of an internet, but you really kind of need to start setting up the primary nodes. Uh, Anyway.
1: That was part one of a two part discussion of We Shall Rise. Part two will be available next week on the podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic Mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor
0: HMS Imperator, Sol System. It was almost time. Honor sat quietly in her observation dome on Imperator's spine, watching the time display in the corner of her artificial eye's field of vision tick steadily downward. Winston Kingsford had complied with her demands, all of them. Quite a few of the civilians evacuated from the deep space infrastructure of the most heavily industrialized star system in the galaxy had found temporary homes aboard the orbital habitats. No doubt they were straining the reserve life support capacity, but that was fine. One thing Habitats had was plenty of redundant life support. And the fact that Kingsford had used those habitats as emergency staging points said quite a lot about whether or not he trusted her to keep her word. Of course, it also said he hadn't had much choice about it, not given the millions upon millions of people he had to move. In fact, she'd granted a 12-hour extension. She should have felt elated, victorious, What she actually felt was dead inside. She sat there with the ghosts of her dead, felt them there, knew they were glad she hadn't given in to the darkness. She knew that, and she still felt dead, empty, drained. She wondered if she would feel that way for the rest of her life. She would complete her mission, do her job, despite that inner deadness, because it was her job, her mission. All she had left but what would she do afterward? How could she find the strength to heal, to be the mother Raoul and Catherine needed? How would Nimitz find the strength to go on without Samantha? And how could she go on if she lost him too to his grief? The two of them sat there with Nimitz in her lap, her hands moving slowly and steadily, automatically on his silken coat while he buried his muzzle against her. She could feel him willing himself towards dissolution on one hand, even as he clung to her on the other. He was balanced on a knife edge, waiting, like her, to complete their final mission. But what about after that? She was afraid, so afraid, he would choose to die and leave her even more alone. The thought terrified what was left of her soul, yet she loved him too much to fight his decision, because, unlike any other human, she knew how deep his pain was how wounded he'd been, and because part of her wanted to do exactly the same thing. And she might. That was what truly ground her soul to dust. She might choose to die herself, even knowing how that would add to her parents' pain, abandon Raoul and Catherine. After all, Allison and Alfred would have the children, and the children would have them. Why shouldn't she lay down the hateful burden her own life had become? She'd given the orders. Grand Fleet would begin Operation Nemesis in two hours. Nuclear charges, multiple charges in many cases, had been planted on every major platform outside Mars orbit, and most of Kingsford's ships had already been blown up. Two dozen super-dreadnoughts still plied back and forth between Mars orbit's industrial platforms and the surfaces of Mars and Old Earth. But they would complete their missions and scuttle within the next 90 minutes or so. Even as she sat here, additional charges were being planted on the inner system platforms which had been evacuated. Shoals of lax had been deployed to deal with any dangerous piece of deorbiting wreckage. Others had been deployed to take care of platforms which weren't being fitted with charges. According to Andrea Jarowalski's ops plan, everything would be ready within the next 30 minutes. And then, one hour and 30 minutes after that, Honor would order the simultaneous synchronized demolition of the entire system's industrial infrastructure. She would order the greatest single act of destruction in human history, turn the entire star system of humanity's birth into a funeral pyre for Hamish and Emily, for Samantha, for her Uncle Jacques, and for Pat Givens, Michael Mayhew, Judah Yanikov, Lucian Cortez, all her dead. And it wouldn't bring a single one of them back to life. Nimitz pressed harder against her as the tears flowed down her cheeks at last. She felt him fighting to reach beyond his own bleak despair, trying to be there for her. And the greatest military triumph in human history was ashes in her mouth, as they faced the dark void of their future. It was- The comm pinged. She twitched, jerked up out of her thoughts, and it pinged again. Her mouth tightened into a thin furious line, and she reached out, stabbed the acceptance key viciously. What? she snapped. I know you left orders not to disturb you, Your Grace, Mercedes Brigham said, but I'm afraid there's been a status change. Is it Kingsford? Is he trying to ask for more time? Honor's voice was tight and harsh with anger. Because if it is- No, Your Grace, Brigham interrupted. It's not from the Sollies. The Duke of Cromarty just made her alpha translation about a light minute out from the limit. A fresh spasm of pain went through honor as she remembered teasing Hamish about using the Duke for transportation to Beowulf. But even more than the pain, she wondered what could possibly have brought Duke of Cromer here. What was Queen Elizabeth's personal yacht doing in the heart of the Sol system, when her skipper couldn't have known before he arrived what he'd find waiting when he did? Of course, the Duke wasn't like most yachts, was she? She was an Agamemnon class BCP fitted with Keyhole 2 and cutting-edge defensive and electronic warfare systems. For all intents and purposes, the Navy had taken a frontline line battlecruiser, turned a quarter of its magazine space into luxurious accommodations for the Empress and up to 150 or so guests, provided it with a picked crew of combat veterans, and called it a yacht. But for all the potency of her armament, she wasn't really a warship. So what was she doing here now of all times? She looked back out at the stars and debated telling Mercedes to handle whatever it was that Duke of Cromarty thought was so desperately important, but she couldn't. A light minute out, she repeated. Yes, Your Grace, but it was a crash translation. She's still carrying a velocity of over 16,000 kps. Honor winced. For Duke of Cromarty to re-enter end space with that much velocity, she must have hit her downward alpha translation at maximum velocity. Honor had done the same thing herself upon occasion, and so she knew what that must have done to the stomachs of every man and woman aboard her. Captain Firestein hit it almost perfectly, Brigham continued. She's decelerating straight for us at five and a half kilometers per second. She'll rendezvous with us in just over 51 minutes, and Captain Firestein requests permission to come aboard with urgent dispatches as soon as she does. Honor frowned. Firestein wanted to hand deliver a dispatch? Why? It made no sense. Then again, nothing else made sense, did it? And she checked the time again. Firestein would reach Imperator 57 minutes before she had to execute Nemesis. No doubt she could deal with whatever brought him here before the deadline, and perhaps she could use the diversion. Maybe it was even a good thing. Unless Firestein's dispatch had been sent because Elizabeth and Willie had changed their minds. Her mouth tightened dangerously as she considered that possibility. But then she shrugged again. It was unlikely Elizabeth Winton, of all people, could have changed her mind, and if she had... Cross that bridge when you get to it, she told herself. All right, Mercedes, she finally sighed. Please meet Captain Firestein when he comes aboard. Escort him to my observation dome. She smiled wanly. Tell him I apologize for not meeting him personally. Of course, your grace, I'm sure he'll understand. In that case, I'll see you, both of you, then, Honor said. She killed the connection, gathered Nimitz back into her arms, and sat gazing out at the stars once more. The admittance signal chimed, and Honor stood, Nimitz cradled in her arms, and turned to face the hatch as she waited for Spencer Hawk to escort her visitor in. But when the hatch opened, it wasn't Hawk who stepped through it, and she froze. He was as tall as she was, although he leaned heavily on a cane at the moment. His right leg seemed thick and swollen under his uniform trousers, because it was in a cast or a splint, a corner of her brain realized. His hair was dark, dramatically silver at the temples, and his face was lined with fatigue pain, worry, and grief. His eyes were bluer than a sphinx sky. A tree cat rode his shoulder. And he couldn't be there. He couldn't. She stared at him, heart thundering, unable to speak, unable to breathe. Not a muscle moved. But then her mouth quivered suddenly, and Nimitz reared upright in her arms, green eyes blazing, his mind glow a forest fire, as he too tasted their mind glows, tasted the fire neither of them had ever expected to taste again, drawing them up, up out of the dark valley where the two of them had been so cold and alone so long, so focused on one another that they'd never even sensed it coming down the passage towards them. Honor, the newcomer said softly, so softly. She tried to reply. She tried and she couldn't. She just couldn't. The silence stretched out as he stood there, braced on the cane, staring at her. And then, she never remembered moving, but suddenly she was in his arms, her vision spangled by tears, her face buried against the side of his neck, feeling the firmness of him, tasting the glory of the mind glows she'd known she would never taste again. And the wonder, and the disbelief, and the sheer searing joy of it smashed over her like the sea. But, but how? She asked a lifetime later. They sat on one of the observation domes' couches, arms still about one another. Nimitz and Samantha were curled so tightly together across their laps that it was impossible to know where one cat began and the other one ended. But perhaps that was actually the point, because there wasn't a spot where one of them began and the other one ended. Any more than there was a spot where Hamish began and she ended. We were lucky, he said softly. We never actually made it to the conference. When the Sollies turned up, traffic control diverted us to the nearest docking point, way the hell and gone out in the boonies. Jacques figured it would take us 45 minutes or an hour just to get to the hub. But then we hit a freight shaft that was down, so we were stuck in a supervisor's module on one of the industrial booms. His eyes darkened in memory, and with the awareness of what would have happened if that freight shaft hadn't gone down. We had some warning after Gamma blew," he continued. Fortunately, Tobias was even more paranoid than I was, and Jacques was a lot more familiar than me with Beowulf and platform design and SOP. Tobias found the emergency suit locker even before Beta went up. The damned thing wasn't properly marked, and he had to smash open half a dozen before he found the right one, and they were gumbies." Arno nodded against his shoulder. No one knew where the term Gumby suit had come from, but it had been applied since pre-diaspora times to the loosely fitting emergency vac suits designed to accommodate the broadest possible range of human shapes and sizes. They were uncomfortable, and it was far harder to move in a Gumby than in a skin suit, but they weren't designed to be comfortable. They were designed to keep someone alive, at least long enough for someone to rescue her, but- They were loose enough we could fit Sam and BCB inside with us, especially Jacques and BCB, The two of them had a lot of room. Hamish twitched a brief smile. It wasn't comfortable, especially for the cats, but it worked. And all three of us two legs managed to suit up before the big one. His smile vanished and his blue eyes went dark and haunted. We knew what it was, of course. According to Captain Neitz, whose people pulled us out, we were less than 500 meters beyond the total destruction zone. The truth is, we shouldn't have made it on her. We really shouldn't have. Her arms tightened fiercely, and he made himself smile as he hugged her back. A Gumby only has about 12 hours of endurance, he said. And all of us got banged up pretty badly by the concussion. Jacques and BCB got hurt worse than Tobias or Sam and me, but I came out of it with a broken leg. You don't want to know about the bruises on my back, either, but at least I took the impact with the bulkhead there, which protected Sam. We were all out for a while. I came to first, which was probably a good thing. Jacques suit had micro tears in three places, and it took Tobias and me a while to find the repair kit and seal them. By then, he'd lost half his air. But he'd also come round, and he was the one who steered us to the access point for the liquid oxygen storage system. He paused and shook his head, then actually smiled crookedly. We umbilicaled to the locks and the emergency power reserve. That gave us plenty of oxygen and enough juice to keep the suits up. But we wouldn't have made it anyway without Neitz and C.P.O. Larkin. And it was even worse for the cats in a lot of ways. They didn't have helmets or any way to see a damned thing. And by the time all four of us had been suited up for six damned days, things got pretty fragrant. Gumbies aren't set up for recycling the way skin suits are, so waste disposal was a problem, and all of us were badly dehydrated by the time they finally found us. Jacques Gumby was out of painkillers by then, too, so it was probably a good thing he was only semi-conscious. They've got him in a hospital in Columbia right now, and BCB's with him. Both of them will be there for a while, Honor, but they made it. They're going to be fine, and Tobias is out in the passage with Spencer right this minute. In the meantime, I really wanted to see you as soon as I could, so I grabbed the duke and headed after you. You mean you wanted to catch me? Let me know you were alive before I committed my very own Eridani violation, she thought, tasting his mind glow, knowing how well he knew her. That's what you were afraid of. And you were right, love, so right but if you'd known the rest, if you knew what I've already done. I'm glad you did, she half whispered, so glad. But Hamish, Emily, shh, he held her close. I knew, they told me. But what they didn't tell you, she said drearily, is that I killed her. I killed her, Hamish. I went to tell her you were gone and I killed her. She died in my arms, and I'm the reason she did. The tears broke loose as she admitted it, as she said the words to someone else. She felt the sudden instant rejection in his mind glow, but he didn't know. He hadn't been there. He hadn't seen it happen. He, that's enough of that. He snapped so suddenly, his voice so hard, she tried to jerk away from him. But he wouldn't let her do that. He held her, and she slumped back, hiding her face against his shoulder. Honor? He said far more softly, and she heard the pain in his voice, tasted its reality in his emotions. You didn't kill her. She was already dying. I knew that. She knew that. She just, she just hadn't wanted to tell you. She stiffened, and he stroked her hair. Honor, love. Emily was on borrowed time from the day of that air car crash. We always knew that. Without her life support chair, she would have- His voice broke, and he had to stop, inhale deeply. We always knew it could happen any time, he said finally. We always knew. And then there was you. Sweetheart, you never knew her before. I don't think you could have any possible idea, even with that empathic sense of yours, what a difference you truly made over the last couple of years. You brought her so much joy. And Raoul and you and your mother brought her Catherine. You know how much she loved the kids. You know that better than anyone else in the universe. And without you, we, she, would never have had them. Without you. His voice broke again. Then he drew another of those deep, shuddery breaths. You went to tell her yourself before she heard it from anyone else. And that's exactly what I would have expected you to do. To be there for her, instead of letting her hear it over a newscast, see it on one of the boards. To be there with her when she found out. I wasn't there, but I didn't have to be because you were. You say she died in your arms. Then you gave her the greatest gift of all. And I know it hurt. And I know it will always hurt. But I envy you because you were there when she needed you most and I can never thank you enough for me, not just for her. So don't you ever tell me you killed her. Whoever planted those bombs killed her, just as surely as they killed Tom Caparelli, Pat, Francine and Tony, and Michael Mayhew, and all the others. She trembled, still unable, or perhaps unwilling, to relinquish her guilt. Yet deep inside, she knew he was right. She had been there, and she remembered the incredible power the final splendor of Emily's mind-glow. And as she remembered, she admitted to herself at last that the pain in that mind-glow had been grief, Emily's awareness that she was leaving honor alone, not fear of death, never fear. Not in that dauntless, blazing mind-glow of the woman she'd loved. And even as she thought that, she realized Hamish was right about who'd really killed her. Maybe you're right, she said, withdrawing from his embrace. Rising to her feet while Nimitz and Samantha moved to Hamish's lap. She looked down at the three people she loved most in all the universe, and she nodded. Maybe you're right, she repeated. And whether or not you are, we have a message to deliver. I know. He met her eyes, and his were almost as cold, almost as focused as hers as he saw the salamander looking back at him. I know he said. So, I suppose there's only one thing left to say. She arched an eyebrow, and he gave her a tree-cat smile. Let's be about it, Admiral Harrington, he said softly. That was
1: another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz and the smoky remains of a Dominican cigar, still 90% intact and a 20 year old Pete Boggy Scotch bottle, still 90% full plus thanks, praise and gratitude to Gary Poole, Jason Cordova, Lydia Scherer, Mike Massa, and John Ringo, editors and authors of we shall rise. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.